It's Sunday, June 21st, 2020. I'm Larry Castle. This is Ken Brown. Thanks for joining us for episode three of That's a Good Question. unrest that has reared its head yet again recently. Um, you wrote a few blog articles that have to do with, uh, on Church Matters blog, that have to do with this discussion of how do we as the church deal with racial issues. And so we began that discussion last week and uh, you did uh, gave some very helpful review of the history starting back with slavery uh, some 500 years ago and moving us forward through history, through the Jim Crow uh, laws, that era, and uh, up into some more modern, some more recent events. And um, we, we want to get to the subject of what does this have to do with the church? Then I can, I can uh, hear some of our listeners maybe wondering, all right, so how does this relate to us as the church? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good, thanks, because it's very important for us to make sure that we are clear about that, that we are not here as two pastors to just be wannabe pundits and just comment on the days, the weeks, the months news. Uh, we're about the gospel. And so why are we taking a few weeks to talk about current events? And last week didn't say much, perhaps anything, about the gospel. So from the outset of this now second episode related to this topic of how does the church handle race issues, it's important for us to be clear that social justice is not the gospel, and we are not suggesting and we are not implying any such thing. Social justice is not the gospel. Uh, however, whether or not we care about social justice will affect us in terms of our effectiveness uh, with the gospel. People need to know that we care about their plight. And that means going out of our way as best we can to understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I had a blog article on that on the Church Matters blog titled, Just Get Over It? Question mm -hmm. mark. And I was trying to make the case there that we need to do our best to understand what has happened to someone uh, that we're trying to love and we're trying to show the love of Christ too. And uh, even if we think they may look at it wrongly, even if that were the case, we still want to understand how they're looking at it. So that is why we are laying out all of this history, but it's designed to get to something. And that something is indeed, now how does this relate to our mission, our mission, the Great Commission, giving the gospel. So I'm glad to have that opportunity to give that disclaimer. I want to give one other, though, disclaimer as well. And that is, as I'm laying out all of this last week and now again today, we're going to lay out some more. As I'm doing that, uh, I am laying out uh, facts related to racism, Jim Crow, as you said, all of that. Uh, that has victimized a group of people, our African-American uh, brothers and sisters in our in our country, and I am making the case as well that what is happening today is at least in part related to that history. I'm not saying that everything that's happening today 
is related to that history. There are other factors. There are other important factors. There is always the factor of personal responsibility mm-hmm. and owning one's life and not simply and always, certainly not always, looking at victimhood. Uh, so there is that factor. There's also another factor, and that is how has the government over the years, how have our leaders reacted to this? What kind of policies have they put in place? Have they been helpful? Have they made the situation worse? There's a case to be made for that. I understand all of that. But those latter two are not what we're focused on here. We're not focused on personal responsibility, and we're not focused on government policies and how those may have contributed in a negative way, and here's why. Because that is what most of us have heard all of our lives. We know this. We, we know this, this. already. Mm-hmm. We've heard personal responsibility. You know, take a buck up, you know, take uh, t- up, uh, build yourself up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's what America is all about. And uh, also, if the government would get out of the way and they wouldn't offer a bunch of social programs on which people become dependent, then it wouldn't be as bad as it is. True or not, that's what most of us, certainly myself, I think you would agree for Same yourself, me, yeah. and I, I would say 90% of those listening to us uh, have heard that. What we've heard less of is the perspective of those who've gone through it. And that's why we're taking the time to do this. So please understand, as we go through this, I'm not saying these are the only factors, but they are very important factors, and it's important for us to understand them in our work of relating to people so that we can represent Christ in carrying out our mission. That's, that's a really helpful foundation. So we left off last time um, moving forward in direction and, and upward, the story you shared at the end, and you had traced for us, beginning with slavery, going through Civil War, Reconstruction, on into the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s and 70s, Jim Crow South we talked about. Um, And we were ready to um, talk about how we have arrived where we're at here in the North. Mm. And so let's pick up where we left off there. Good. Yep. So when we ended last time, I said that racism is not a Southern problem. It's a sinful humanity problem. Uh, Racism is not confined to a particular region. Uh, I have a, a very good friend who grew up in the South in a segregated um, uh, community, um, moved north, has been up here for nearly 40 years. And he has told me that he was surprised to find that up here, actually the racism was more pronounced Hmm. than it was where he grew up in the South. And in fact, over the years, over those nearly 40 years, as he has gone back to the South, he finds that there's a kinder and gentler relationship between uh, blacks and whites in, in the South than there is up here. Yeah, so uh, there definitely is uh, racism in, in our area, and we do want to take some time to find out how we got there because we're trying to set the context for how we minister effectively in uh, Southeast Michigan, in Trenton, mm-hmm. Michigan, where God has called our church and our, our people. So we want to get to where we are in our day But to get here, uh, we need to understand how it happened. So please indulge me as I give some more history. And again, I'm going to start in the South, but then I'll move forward to where where we are. Very helpful. So how did it happen? Here's a statistic for you. How did it happen 
that the average black household has 60% of the income of the average white household. And the average black household has only one-tenth of the wealth of the average white household. Hmm. So only 60% of the income, only one-tenth of the accumulated wealth. So let's quickly review some factors that played into that. After the uh, Civil War ended, nine states in the South enacted what are called, were called vagrancy laws. Hmm. And what that was uh, were laws that made it uh, against the law not to have a job. So think about that. You have, you have slaves that have been freed. It's now against the law for them not to have a job. As a result, many in those states were uh, arrested. Uh, this law was applied only to blacks, hmm. even though the law wasn't written to say only blacks, it was only applied to blacks. In eight of those nine states, get this, those prisoners could then be leased out <laughs> to others. So, so slaves that were released from slavery wound up back on the plantation under this convict lease arrangement for, for many of them. There were other laws, in addition to the vagrancy laws, called uh, mischief laws mm -hmm. and um, insulting gesture laws. So any perceived mischief, any perceived insulting gestures, then one could be arrested. Many black men were indeed arrested. Mm -hmm. And so the market for this convict leasing uh, grew. Uh, working conditions for these black men who were in those situations were often worse than in slavery because the person who was leasing them now didn't have a vested interest in caring for them oh, like no. they sometimes did, often did, in uh, a slavery arrangement. So as you move forward, uh, we talked last week about separate but equal. Mm -hmm. In uh, 1896, there was a landmark Supreme Court case, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, that said separate but equal was completely constitutional. But as you look at history, you see that uh, where this was practiced, separate was practiced very meticulously. It was the equal part <laughs> that mm -hmm. we, we didn't get uh, right. And so from 1896 on, and again, especially in the South, you had these Jim Crow laws that separated everything from schools to housing, jobs, restrooms, hotels and restaurants, hospitals, prisons, funeral homes, morgues, cemeteries. They even had laws, <laughs> politicians competed with one another to see who could be most segregationist. Wow. There, there were laws against playing checkers with someone uh, who was black. Well, in some no, of these cases. no interracial recreation. No, nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw one person joked that way. Well, you know, who knows? That might lead to lawn darts after that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's just really, really ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and it would be funny if it weren't so weren't so sad. Right. But that all remained in place until you had another landmark Supreme Court decision, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, and that. Uh, decision said, and I believe I'm quoting here, separate but equal is inherently unequal. Hmm. And it ended segregation in all of those public accommodations that, that I listed. Well, like we talked about last week, it's one thing to have the emancipation, 
Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. It's another thing for it to actually be implemented. It's one thing to have a Supreme Court decision, but to actually see it implemented. So what happened? Well, you have a number of people who are very vehemently opposed mm -hmm. to this. I mentioned George Wallace last week down in uh, Alabama. Just a few years after that decision, he gets inaugurated as governor. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Two years after that decision, 1956, um, there is a pact that is signed by, called the Southern Manifesto, signed by 101 Southern congressmen, 101 of 128. They signed what's called, and you could Google this, the Southern Manifesto. Hmm. And the Southern Manifesto was a pledge to make sure that Jim Crow continued in the South, hmm. despite what the Supreme Court had said. Five states in the South enacted nearly 50 more Jim Crow laws after that 1954 uh, decision. As a result of that, private, white-only uh, schools called segregation academies hmm. were started throughout the South. Many of those were, were Christian. Wow. So we're, we're still talking about the South yeah. now. Right. So did those kind of... Uh, ideologies that that sentiment mm. find fertile ground in the north yeah so now we, we can start to get to the north finally <laughs> and uh, many uh, black citizens uh, migrated to the north for factory jobs also just to uh, escape the segregation of of the south from 1916 to 1970 1916 to 1970 that's a period of time known as the Great Migration. Hmm. Great Migration of blacks from the South to the North, primarily for those two reasons, jobs, but also to escape, uh, escape Jim, Jim Crow. But when they get here, what did they find? And I'd like to talk about then the North a little bit, where we are, and, and uh, how racism has reared its head. Now, this past week, I had some pastor friends who uh, recommended to me an 18-minute video. And uh, I watched that video, and in 18 minutes, it is chock full of statistics and facts that I think all of you would find uh, very enlightening. I'm going to give some of those today, but I can't give all of them. So at the end of our time, we will make that link available. We'll let you know how you can... Yeah, we'll put it, we'll put it in the notes on Facebook. We'll put it in the comments. Okay, very good. So the number one, it starts this way. Uh, you have this migration coming north. But here's the problem. Why didn't things get appreciably better when people escaped the south? Why, why didn't they? Well, one of the reasons is that uh, the number one source of accumulated wealth for most Americans is home ownership. Mm -hmm. And so we need to think about some of the laws that were enacted related, and policies pursued related to home ownership and how that had a disparate impact upon on blacks and whites. From the 1930s well into the 1960s, the federal government enacted policies that actively encouraged white families to own homes and discouraged black families from doing the same thing. Now, how did they do that? So let me give you some examples of that. 1934, FHA, many of us have heard of that. It stands for Federal Housing Administration. 1934, the Federal Housing Administration created a risk rating system to determine which neighborhoods were safe enough 
in order to qualify for federally backed mortgages. Black neighborhoods were deemed too risky and they were marked off on maps with a red pen, a red marker, and that became known as redlining. So these are areas where you don't go in terms of federal benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, uh, housing. After World War II, there was a boom of new housing in the, the suburbs all over the country, but much of that was restricted to whites only. So for example, in 1948, 40% of new housing developments in Minneapolis had covenants that prohibited purchase of homes by African Americans. So blacks couldn't live in white neighborhoods and they couldn't get federally insured loans for black neighborhoods. Hmm. So they couldn't live in, they could only live in certain places and in those places it was very difficult for them to own homes in those places. Now I just mentioned Minneapolis. <laughs> that ought to ring a bell because in the last few weeks that's precisely where you had the knee on the neck hmm. incident. So please understand, these things do not happen in a vacuum. There is a history to what has led up to them. Until 1950, get this, the Realtors Code of Ethics specifically prohibited selling a house in a white neighborhood to a non-white family. Until when? Until 1950. Wow. Yeah. You could lose your Realtors license if you helped a black family buy a home in a white neighborhood. In the 1930s, the FHA, again, this Federal Housing Administration, its underwriting manual said, quote, incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. The FHA went on to recommend that highways would be a great way to separate black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods. No. So here's a solution. If we're going to be building highways, let's build highways in such a way that it divides along, along racial lines. Wow. The FHA funded huge white-only suburban housing developments and it left blacks behind in inner cities. So we look at it then, you know, we talked last week about our backgrounds. Mm -hmm. you know, so 1962, I'm, I'm born in Southeast Michigan, Downriver, Michigan, Wyandotte Hospital in Michigan. You grew up in Southwest Detroit. I grew up right next to that. Yeah. I think I think of my uh, youth, 1972s when I'm born, and I'm thinking about man that stuff had been you know that was all in the, so far in the past, not that far, not that far in the past. No, but when you're born and then you're a kid and you're mm -hmm. going, to, you don't know what's preceded that. Right. You don't generally have reason to think about what preceded that. I mean, I mentioned last week that I, our our school was segregated. Our housing was segregated, but it didn't really occur to me as a kid to, to think about it. But we had athletics that were integrated. Mm. <laughs> I didn't say last week that all of the games for my little league, all of them, my entire life, were all played on our side of the divide. I never went to play a game. There were no games in our little league held on the black side of town. Mm. They all had to come to our side of town. Everything that was important in the city was located on the white side of well, white side of town. But again, that's just we went about our business, and as again, you don't you don't think about it. After World War II, the GI Bill provided subsidized mortgages. It helped men, millions of men who were returning 
back from the war to buy their first home. Now, technically, uh, blacks were also eligible for the GI Bill, but the way it was ministered, it left a million black veterans on the outside looking in. Here are some mm. statistics on that. In New York and New Jersey, the GI Bill insured more than 67,000 new mortgages. 67,000. Fewer than 100 of those were purchased by non-whites. Wow. In 1947, there were 3,200 mortgages in Mississippi that were guaranteed by the government for returning veterans through the GI Bill. Of 3,200, only two went to black veterans wow. out of 3,200. As a result of that, white families after the war were able to build home equity. They grew wealth as a result of that for retirement, for inheritance, for college education for their kids. So that one historian has stated that there was no greater instrument for widening an already huge racial gap in post-war America than the implementation of the, the GI Bill. The overwhelming majority of African Americans in 1970 lacked college degrees and they had grown up in fully segregated schools. In the second half of the 20, uh, 20th century, so from the 1950s on, factories and manufacturing jobs moved to the suburbs. Now remember, the black folks couldn't live in those suburbs. Mm -hmm. So black workers struggled to follow where the jobs were. They couldn't live in many of those new suburban developments, and as late as 1970, so I'm already I'm eight years old at that time, a year or two years away from, mm -hmm. from being born, but as late as 1970, only 28% of black fathers had access to a car mm. to get to the job. So here's one example of northern, I mean, you see all that in place, you see all the segregation in place in the north, mm -hmm. and the vehemence with which many white folks uh, resented black folks encroaching upon what they saw as theirs is illustrated by a, uh, a story in a suburb of Chicago, Cicero, Illinois, a, a white man in that town sublet an apartment to a black family. And the white community rioted as a result of it, set fire to the apartment building, smashed windows, the National Guard had to come in and, mm. and intervene. Wow. You know, this is very helpful to think about because, you know, I sometimes you'll hear someone my age will hear the discussion about um, the disadvantage uh, that African Americans have as opposed to a, a white person. And we, we think that the conversation is just trying to point back to, simply point back to slavery. Mm. But it's much more complicated than that and much more recent That's right. than that. Yeah. So these, these um, things you described are racism extending into the north now. What about specifically our area? Okay, yeah, so just the north in general, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, Michigan, but here we are in, in southeast Michigan. Well, Detroit was certainly one of those places that African Americans came in order to escape Jim Crow and also find these uh, manufacturing jobs. But they came to a city that was overwhelmingly white in population one at the time uh, of the migration, but also completely white in terms of its administration. Uh, white mayors, white police chiefs, white police department. 
a nearly all-white police department in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, no blacks in positions of leadership. And the relationship during those decades between the police and between the black citizens in Detroit was horrible. Now, I say horrible. Uh, I'm going to talk briefly in a bit about the 1967 riots that occurred here in Detroit. And many watching this lived through that. Uh, many uh, at least have read about it, even if we weren't alive at the time. Uh, I was five. Uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. But what we don't know is that was preceded by other riots. That these tensions didn't start in 1967. 1943, there was a riot hmm. in Detroit. The year before the 67 riots, 66, there was also an uprising as well. But then in 67, it just it blew up. And then just blow up in Detroit. It was in uh, Newark. It was in Chicago. It was in many northern cities. Now, here in Detroit, it was particularly bad. 43 people were killed hmm. in the 67 uh, riots. And as I say, there was a complete breakdown between the relationship between the police and the citizenry in, in Detroit. Now, what many of us have grown up with, what uh, I've grown up with, is this idea that uh, Detroit was fine until the riots. Hmm. And it was really fine until Detroit elected Coleman Young. Hmm. I mean, I've heard that, and frankly, until I started doing some reading, reading on it several years ago, I thought that. I have to admit, I thought that. Uh, because there was white flight from the city, after that, and you know, things went downhill for a very long period of time, and we've seen that in our, in our lifetime. But Coleman Young was elected mayor, first black mayor in 1973. He won a very close election against the then uh, chief of police, so the guy who had been running, the white chief of police. It was kind of the last hurrah for the white administration. And when Coleman Young won, he uh, appointed a black police chief. You've had black police chiefs uh, since that time. The administration of the city of Detroit uh, has been overwhelmingly African-American. The population of the city of Detroit is overwhelmingly African-American because of this white flight. But I always thought it all started in 67, but it didn't. As I say, it goes back to 43. It really goes back. It is all of this coming to the, the fore. Um, finally, in, in 1967. Uh, there was a book that I read, and I recommend it to you all. Uh, David Marinus. David Marinus wrote a book called Once a Great City. Once a Great City. And David Marinus is uh, a prize-winning uh, journalist and, and author, and uh, he's written lots of books. On, he wrote a, an excellent book on Bill Clinton when he was the president. Um, but he wrote this book about the city of Detroit, and the reason he did, he says in the book, is because he was watching the Super Bowl, I think it was in 08, after everything had fallen apart financially throughout the country. Detroit was particularly having a tough time, and the Super Bowl then that January or February uh, had the M&M. M&M had a Chrysler commercial. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a, a famous Super Bowl commercial. He watched that about Detroit, and he recalled 
hey, I was born in Detroit. <laughs> now, he'd been gone from Detroit since he's like you know, six years old. But he remembered his school that he went to when he was in kindergarten, that he went to when he was in first grade. And it struck a chord with him that, hey, I want to go back to that. I want to find out you know, what it was like when I was born there and how it's gotten to where it is. And he wrote this book, Once a Great City. Mm -hmm. And it is just chock full of detail about how we got to where we are with race relations in our part of, of God's world. Just one other uh, example of how the effects of racism found their way here. Dearborn, Dearborn, Michigan, which is just uh, not far from us here. Yeah, Dearborn, Michigan for 42 years had the same mayor and the mayor was Orville Hubbard. Orville Hubbard was a virulent, virulent racist. In fact, just here within the last few weeks with all that's been going on, uh, Orville Hubbard's um, a statue has, has been removed be mm. because of that. But for 42 years, all the way through 1978, he was the, he was the mayor of, of Dearborn. And, you know, I was a teenager during that time. And I lived right near, we lived right near yeah. Dearborn. Uh, but never, never occurred to me, never thought about it. There wasn't a ton that was made uh, about it at the time. It was just more normal than you can imagine, given all that's happened. Right, now. yeah. Well, uh, this, this is all very helpful. Um, and there's more to talk about, but I think we've reached the end of our time for today. Really? Okay. So, yeah, it goes, time flies when I'm you're uh, you. having profitable conversation. But, uh, so we'll pick up next week uh, talking about other very important topics like is systemic racism, mm. we hear this term used, mm -hmm. is, is this a real thing? What do we need to think about in terms of what we hear talked about is systemic racism. Okay. So, but thank you for uh, this helpful background, um, learning things each week. And I do promise, if I can, I, so I, I, I will make this promise that next episode, we will get to not just the historical stuff, but we will get to, all right, what's it mean for our mission? What's it mean for the church? What's it mean for the Christian life? Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks. And we'll see you next episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000. So you, you shared the link. We put it down in the notes. If you're still here, congratulations if you're still watching, <laughs> uh, because this is fun. Um, but Pastor Ken recommended the video that you'll find down in either the comments or the notes to this episode, and it features Phil Vischer talking about racism in this history that we're talking about. And I said, after recording the initial part of this to Pastor Ken, that's so cool. When I saw that video, I was, well, I subscribed to his channel. And when I saw that video, I thought, this is wonderful. Larry the Cucumber laying down <laughs> truth still after all these years. I tell Pastor Ken that. He said, what? Who's Larry the Cucumber? <laughs> now, and I, I said, I said I Veggie Tales. Veggie Tales. Now, I know Larry the Geek. <laughs> But I, <laughs> I didn't know Larry the Cucumber until yeah. he told me VeggieTales. So Phil Vischer is the creator of VeggieTales and the voice of Larry the Cucumber. So when you watch this video, just keep that in mind. <laughs> and uh, hopefully it'll, it'll add that much more dimension to it. So thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time. <laughs>